0: Well, we caught up with uh, our next guest on the first trading day of this year, Tim. It was back in January, and we talked about how things were going, how the pandemic has changed and shifted the world of technology and IT demand. So it's great to get his perspective again.
1: Yeah, Ram Nagapan is Chief Information Officer at BNY Mellon's Pershing. He joins us on the phone from New Jersey. Ram, how are you doing?
2: Doing good, doing good. Happy to be here with you during the Week of Insights, the BNY Mellon's Pershing Advisor Conference.
1: Yeah. We are excited to have you back. Um, take us through how things have shifted over the last five months as, as we have started this move, uh, many of us and, and many of your clients, back to the office.
2: Yeah, meaning we, we do see everybody moving into the hybrid. And hmm. from a technology point of view, I want to say we did have technology that helped us work on remote. But I want to say there's going to be a lot of innovation and changes that's going to happen in this space because whatever the tools we have, has helped us but it is not the best so the remote work or working in a different places is going to exist and a newer technology and a new way of how we collaborate is going to happen we see more and more digital uh, capability is going to be rolled out and the experience that our clients are going to face while they work wherever they work however they work it's going to be very different and it's going to be all digital, and more innovation is going to happen. And that's what I see in this, um, you know, I would say the hybrid work uh, environment that's going to go into. So we're all excited to come back to work, actually, and um, it, it's slowly progressing. I would say uh, we take it day by day as things are getting back to our original, and hope we all. Uh, expected to come back to the original as soon as possible.
0: Well, I can't wait to be with you guys uh, uh, with Insight in person <laughs> because it's such a great check, from, I always feel like, for me and for our Bloomberg audience to get an idea of what's on the mind of investment advisors, what they're hearing from clients, You know, what are the themes and trends that we need to be aware of. And you really kind of put it together in terms of the technology world. You say more digital, more innovation in space to come. So what does that mean more specifically?
2: Yeah, so so more specifically what I would say is uh, people are applying technology to either be efficient or to deliver the right experience and for the growth. But here is what I wanted to say, meaning people are looking at it in an incremental fashion. That's good. There's nothing wrong in doing applying technology to make it better in an incremental way. But what I would you know, advise or make all the innovators think is to be completely reinvent what you do using this opportunity. Reinvent either it could be a business model or it could be the way in which we deliver products and tools. So, uh, meaning even in the inside, we're talking about how the advisory is changing from selling products and using tools to almost like perfecting your practice and focusing on your client. So, it's 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 all about reinventing your business applying the technology. So it's more like technology driving and technology enabling you to do these kind of things.
1: What about when it comes to new innovations like cryptocurrency? Carol and I were talking about Bitcoin and El Salvador yes. becoming the first country to actually make Bitcoin legal tender. Bitcoin right now trading at about $36,000. Um, how has technology changed that just during the pandemic?
2: Yeah, so, so we're talking about crypto, the underlying blockchain, uh, it's it used for the um, the digital currency as well as other. So the technology of blockchain is there to exist. Now, talking about crypto per se, um, it's, it's, it is volatile and there's a lot of regulatory oversight on it. So we at BNY Mellon, you know, actually announced that we are going to be supporting the crypto uh, pretty much the entire life cycle. our clients to come and consume either from creation of the asset all the way to um, custodying and uh, other type of things on top of the crypto so my view on this is uh, the technology is pretty solid not only in the space of the cryptocurrencies but also into a smart contract and other type of uh, blockchain uh, applications Um, that's here to stay even the cryptocurrency is here to stay. it's just that Um, you know, we need to be conscious about where it gets applied, how it gets applied based on the volatility and other things. People need to select, learn. I think the first thing is about the advisory community. It's all about learning the new asset classes. And we will provide all the capabilities, but you need to match exactly where to use crypto with your clients and all of those It's going to happen. So it's an evolving space, but I wanted to say it's a space, it's an asset class that is here to stay.
1: Ram, what was the moment that, that you realized that it was here to stay and you needed to make these changes from a technological perspective to offer this to clients?
2: my thing is when when you see the price fluctuates and institutions getting in, see, it, it started in a long time back. It actually started as a retail, you know, the initial coin offering. But then when the institutions get inside, then it's for the real. It's for the real. It's for, it's for the time it's here to stay because everyone, big and small, they're all looking at the asset classes. The regulation is looking at it. So they're trying to, when the regulations are all looking at it, it is an asset class that's here to stay because they're all going to make it You know, I, I don't want, I would say safe and sound and correct and, um, for that asset class to stay. And then it's for real. It's for you to stay.
0: All right, going to leave it there, Rom. So good to hear your voice. Uh, be well, and look forward to talking with you again, Rom Nagapan, his chief information officer at BNY Mellon's Pershing, on the phone from New Jersey. And interesting to hear him describe it as an asset class.
1: I know, and especially the way that they're involved in the process from blockchain creation, from the creation of the asset on the blockchain, and the way they're thinking about the blockchain.
0: Mark McClone saying, "We're all going to have a piece of it in our portfolio at some point." I know. I, who knows? <laughs> Time will tell. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Check it out. Another batch of names have been added to the meme stock frenzy as retail traders latched on to their latest favorites today. So, yes, we've had GameStop, AMC, Hertz so last year. And yesterday we talked about Clover Health and Wendy's. Today, Tim, we got some new names. We
1: do. Katie Grafeld from Bloomberg News is here to tell us all about it. She's a cross asset reporter and joins us uh, in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She's also my anchor for Bloomberg Quick Take Stock. It happens each and every day at noon. How Wall much Street did time. you
0: guys talk about meme stocks today?
1: Today, yesterday. <laughs> Probably tomorrow, it's what there is. it's what is happening. and the big the big mm. the big question I have, Katie, is is what makes a stock a meme stock?
3: That is what I'm trying to figure out because I mean, if you look at the names that are moving today, you have GEO, for example, that's a prison operator. you have uh, clean energy fuels that operates natural gas filling stations. It feels a little bit random. I mean, at least GEO, if you look at the short interest,
0: oh, and is it GEO, not GeO?
3: No, it's G E O and <laughs> Just the, the short interest is pretty high it's at 35% so that's a potential short squeeze target but it's not as clear on clean energy fuels it just feels very much not as
0: high i I saw it on that one it's not as high and wendy's yesterday wasn't that high no
3: wendy's so wendy's fits is interesting because it fits into this broader trend of very nostalgic names like Mm -hmm. very early 2000s names like gamestop amc blackberry express those are all names that I don't know. At least to me, they evoke a specific place and time. And you have seen a little bit of that. But in these names that we're moving today, I don't think anyone has any warm, fuzzy feelings attached to GEO, for example, that prison operator.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say.
0: Yeah.
3: Well, but but it but, you know, we, we
0: were talking earlier before we got started, a conversation we were having with Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, because we have to think about how do we cover this? Because often there's a fair amount of volume in these names, right? And so when you look at the markets overall, but I do feel like when you look at market caps and things, there's such a small sliver of our financial and market universe.
3: Exactly. It almost feels like Russian roulette, where suddenly totally. one day you're going to wake up and there's just going to be crazy volumes in names that really haven't seen anything like it. And it's interesting to me. I mean, it's interesting to try to track this ball of money around the markets, but it's also interesting to see professional investors try to adapt to it. Because, I mean, what do you do? And there's actually a great article on the terminal right now from my colleague, Lou Wang, who who spoke to Chris Harvey from Wells Fargo, who, who said that his hedge fund clients They don't want to short any specific names. They're afraid of getting squeezed. So they're moving into shorting ETFs and really Mm -hmm. large companies because you don't want to end up in this situation if you have a lot of money on the line. Well, I
1: wonder about the chatter that's happening in places like Wall Street Bets right now. And it's a place that you spend a lot of time. And look, it's for work.
3: (laughs) You love saying that. I do,
1: (laughs) because that's where you're lurking on most days. And I I do wonder what they're saying about these companies today. And also, if it's possible for some hedge fund to come in and, you know, front-run, essentially, the conversation in there and say, wait a second, we're going to get in early on this because we know that when people talk about this in this forum, there's increased activity.
3: I mean, you have heard a few investors or hedge funds come out and say that, you know, we are basically doing that. And if you do scroll through these pages, I mean, you can kind of get a sense of people are trying to, like, put together blueprints, trying Mm -hmm. to identify short potential short squeeze targets. So... There is a sense that, I mean, this can't all be retail. At a certain point, you probably see some more institutional, some professional names come in and try to capitalize on that.
0: What's interesting is clean energy fuels... um is up six out of the past seven trading sessions for a gain of nearly 48%. It's up like 46 or 45, 46%. I mean, these are names, if you look at GEO Group, it's up eight of the past nine trading days for a gain of 82%. So, I mean, it's happening over a week's period of time. And I do wonder, when does it hit your radar or our radar that we put it in a story on the Bloomberg?
3: I think that's a great point. And that was something I was thinking about with Clover Health earlier mm-hmm. today. It's not doing so well today, but had an amazing day yesterday. And you saw options volume just spike yesterday. But if you look into April, for example, or even last week, a few weeks leading up to yesterday, right. It was something you saw building. So it it feels like it it doesn't it's not like turning on a light switch. It's is something that builds and but it just feels like it explodes onto the radar on one specific day and when you get double digit moves
0: right and i do wonder like is there some formula or algorithm that people are trying to figure out that how do you track do all of these meme stocks go up for about eight days you know what i mean like <laughs> i do wonder like what is how do we kind of find what the next one is because i know bloomberg intelligence has been looking at this stuff yeah and absolutely and
3: that's something that I mean my colleagues and I are trying to determine is there some pattern here but then you have companies like AMC and GameStop that just are constantly in the conversation that right. started the conversation still in it
0: well you've got lots of work to do
1: Katie <laughs> from Bloomberg News cross asset reporter also Bloomberg Quick Take co-anchor
0: you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio All right, I can't sing this, but you know Margaritaville. It's definitely a hit song. You can can sing it. <laughs> Feel free. I could. Uh, it's a chill state of mind. It's a multi-billion-dollar marketing empire, and Tim, it is a news attraction in Times Square.
1: It is. It's also the cover story uh, for the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's available on newsstands and at bloomberg.com/businessweek. Joining us now is Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us right here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio, and Austin Carr, technology reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from LA. Joel, I learned so much. I learn all. I always learn when I read stories in Bloomberg Business. I had no idea that Margaritaville's empire was this big. Uh,
4: that's the best thing about this story is that y- little. I mean, you know Jimmy Buffett from yeah. music. I mean, it's near and dear to me, um, being a, the parrot head that I am, uh, and the fact that he was able to turn one song into basically something that's even bigger than his music success um this the scale of this empire is amazing and and it is a I'll call it a modest news hook but uh, they are in the process of opening Margaritaville in Times Square right off Times Square on 40th Street and it is the it feels just like the perfect time to take over Manhattan with Margaritaville right <laughs> we all need as the it. city reopens and uh, you know, we're all vaccinated and get to go celebrate with, you know, um, way too many margaritas, I'm sure. Um, so, so Austin, uh, rewind the clock a little bit. Tell us about how you got the story.
5: Um, I actually started reporting this story because I had uh, come across their frozen concoction maker, uh, which I would (laughs) highly recommend. I think we describe it in the story as the uh, iPhone of adult beverage makers. And it it very much is that. I mean, it's, it's really a beautiful piece of machinery. And I just realized, oh, my God, like, if this... Company Margaritaville, which I also had those associations to the song or to you know a tequila hangover, but not to this sort of uh, hardware maker or hotel empire. Um, and so I just started getting interested in, in diving deeper into the research, and that's where this story started. And we realized there was so much more when we started talking with Margaritaville, their executives in Florida, and just realizing they were not only opening this three hundred and seventy million dollar property in Times Square, but right now we're in the process of developing 25 or 26 or more properties around the, the globe, from retirement villages to boutique hotels to resorts to RV parks, water parks, you name it. Uh, they're sort of really in, involved in so many different entities that, that just sort of boggles the mind.
4: How did it all get started, Austin?
5: So it actually rewinds, uh, it goes back to the, the late 1990s. Uh, Margaritaville's uh, CEO is a guy named John Colin, Uh and he was moving down to Palm Beach uh, and and met uh, Jimmy Buffett through mutual friends, and uh, he had been in private equity before, just working at a company that owned Long John Silvers and, and later bought Snapple and was involved in consumer branding. And when out of Jimmy Buffett, he just realized this is the biggest brand there is. These parrot heads, sort of, uh, you know, just really enjoying themselves at this concert, moving in unison, could sort of sort of, you know, win over more consumers than, uh, you know, Long John Silver's ever could. And they started exploring, uh, John Cullen and Jimmy, whether or not they could build this into a larger empire. And the first thing that they opened was a big, massive restaurant in Orlando uh, near Universal Studios theme park, uh, which was sort of an ode to Jimmy Buffett and what he stood for in terms of Margaritaville's music, uh, you know, sort of the general uh, salt shaker vibe that he has. And they built it from there throughout the 2000s, turning it into more restaurants, a beer brand with Anheuser-Busch, um, and a lot of consumer goods, including that daiquiri uh, maker I mentioned, which, which retails for up to $500.
3: You
0: sound like that one a, a uh, lot. Wait, I, I have to ask,
4: you <laughs> spent $500 on a daiquiri maker? <laughs> just, uh, I got the uh, Bali version, which only retails for $300, Joel. Okay, so, yeah, right, I, I, uh, you know, don't just worry. Just
1: checking. Thank <laughs> don't worry, Joel. You'll, you'll prove that at the end of I the month. I was answer. just going to say, it's going to yeah, yeah, come
0: pre, up in It predated expensive. the
1: story, I think. Yeah.
0: <laughs> hey, but the, the interesting thing is, and we Tim and I were talking about this off air it seems the model is very similar to president trump's model of they don't own a lot right they don't own a ton of real estate behind all of this they own a lot of ip intellectual property
5: That's right. It's what it's called an asset light model. Um, You know, that's what Hilton has. I mean, that's frankly Mm -hmm. what Airbnb has or Uber has, too. Um, I think the one thing that they were extremely successful was, in a way that perhaps uh, former President Trump uh, was not, was just in terms of overseeing the quality of products they licensed their name to, enforcing strict quality standards. So they're they're very uh, involved in the design process, the development of resorts, and the branding that goes into these things, just to make sure they live up to their standards. So there's not of the equivalent of you know there, there actually is a margaritaville university i was it, just
1: going to ask if there was a margaritaville <laughs> university <laughs>
5: It's a funny name they use for a college ambassador program just to sort of get younger fans on board. So they're not actually uh, teaching uh, kids, but I, it was, I believe, a lot more successful than uh, Trump University was. Uh, but the in terms of just some of the other uh, ecosystem products they have, yeah, it, it's definitely that model of they like to sort of make sure you're, you're drinking Jimmy's beer at the same time you're buying Jimmy's uh, tequila, staying at their branded restaurants and hopefully later on their hotels, their vacation cottages and so forth. So it's of products that feed into each other in this, this, this virtuous brand loop.
1: So Austin, how do they get the next generation of, of parrot heads? You mentioned the, the Margaritaville University, the ambassador program, but, but how do they make sure that this transcends age?
5: Yeah, I think what they're trying to do is make sure that this is identified with more of a lifestyle rather than an individual. In other words, I think a lot of bands no matter how old, how young, will know that song and sort of can generally define what it stands for and sort of in terms of this beachy cachet, uh, a sort of sort of vacation island vibe. And that's what they're building up more of. Um, I talked to Warren Buffett for the story, um, and, and that was one thing he, he stood for. Uh, he, he sort of mentioned was that this idea that it's sort of, uh, you know, Jimmy is is not just Jimmy. He's sort of an institution that stands for this overall lifestyle that, you know, Lord knows Hyatt would like to have. Lord knows, you know, Airbnb would want to, you know, have in, in the sense that this stands for something more universal. And I think that's how they're going to go after younger fans. They also have, you know, Landshark Beer, which you might have heard, which is a, a competitor to Corona, um, and they have a lot of consumer goods that are targeting younger generations of fans that, uh, you know, are just different from your average parrot head, I would say.
4: I, I think the article and cover story, uh, it makes you look at your life and look at your choices, and like, you know, it makes me want to build a business <laughs> empire inspired <laughs> off of a song, and also makes me wish I were Austin Carr and like have $300 daiquiris that inspire <laughs> these stories, so thank you, Austin.
0: We're on our way, we are we go ahead. Yeah.
5: Oh, I was just going to
6: say, just to be clear, Joel, I did not expense the daiquiris. <laughs> I know that. I know. <laughs> good man.
0: Needless to say, we're getting on a plane, we're coming over, and you got to make some daiquiris or margaritas for us. Um, great stuff. Austin Carr, it's the domestic cover story of Business Week magazine. Tech reporter at Bloomberg News. Joining us from LA, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. i got to say, I love that they the two Buffets know each other. No relation, though. No is relation. This, and, no
1: relation.
4: And, yeah, it's, Jimmy is definitely the other Buffett in our world, you know, but <laughs> clearly that world's so, bigger than, his oh, world's but bigger we had than me Terrified. Depending on your yeah.
1: level of being a parrot head, right?
4: <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So in about 90 minutes or so, we're going to get earnings from the meme stock that started all, I guess you could say, we're talking about GameStop now. Yes.
1: uh, But do earnings even matter? I don't know. For GameStop? I don't think they do.
0: They've added $21 billion in market value this year. $21 billion.
1: It's the original original meme stock, Carol. Yeah.
0: yeah, Exactly. So all right, let's get some perspective. And lucky for us, uh, Bloomberg News Equities reporter Bailey Lipschultz is with us on the phone in New York City. Bailey, good to have you here with Tim and myself. So as Tim mentioned... uh, the results that we get from GameStop, the fundamental earnings and sales outlook, does it matter? Not really. <laughs> um, <okay. laughs> All right, interview's and over. We'll done. see you later,
7: Bailey. Analysts <laughs> are <laughs> looking for about 1.17 billion in quarterly revenue, but outside of that, there's really more of a focus on what's next. Obviously, they named uh, Ryan Cohen chairman earlier today at their annual meeting, so that was a big news. Um, Peg, and then he spoke to investors, which kind of took Reddit by storm. But for the most part, from a fundamental standpoint, I don't think you can get anyone to come out and say wholeheartedly that earnings today actually matter, given where the stock's trading.
1: Okay. So Bailey, what is that future that big believers in GameStop, people who have been behind the stock for months? What does that future look like? How does it compete with Best Buy? How does it compete with Amazon?
7: It's been pretty mum.
1: Uh, Cohen came out today saying
7: that thinks they're going in the right place and they have clear goals, uh, but didn't offer too much um, in the grand scheme of what that strategy looks like. Obviously, they've wiped out their debt. They're working on closing down storefronts, which were driving big losses before Cohen really pushed his way onto the board. Um, But from a grand scheme of things, the idea is that he'll be able to do what happened with Chewy. Obviously, everyone said Chewy wouldn't be successful, with your Petco's and PetSmart's and then obviously online retailers. But video games is obviously much, much more difficult because you can download games straight to your PlayStation or straight to your Xbox and you don't really need a company to deliver those
5: products.
0: Right. And especially, you know, I do wonder, is there a way like the Apple Store has created an experience where you go in and play with products? I mean, you can order a lot of Apple stuff just online, right? You can easily do that. Is there a way for them to create some kind of experience at a GameStop store that brings people in that somehow supports that retail environment? It seems far-fetched, but I'm just curious. But
7: that's been one of the things that, depending on who you talk to and who are core believers, see as a potential option. Obviously, it, it, as you said, it is a bit far-fetched and hard to wrap your mind around, but you could have them get into e-gaming in some capacity, whether that's sponsoring or owning a team professionally or building up kind of like a training ground built into the stores that you go and practice against peers um, in person and online. But that's kind of one of the, one of the things that more people I talk to want to see that laid out. They want to see the future vision vision and something that can justify a lofty market value that's kind of much larger than what it was when it was trading for about $4 last July.
1: Bailey, you mentioned Ryan Cohen. Talk a little bit about him and and how important he is to the the GameStop story, at least as the the retail investors see it. He's what you
7: got behind. Uh, When he came out with RC Ventures and bought a 12 to 13% stake in the company, pushed his way onto the board and obviously is now chairman. Um, the company is looking for a CEO. So if you truly are investing in GameStop, you're a believer that Ryan Cohen is going to come in and he's going to do what he's able to do with Chewy. And there is a long-term vision where it can be very successful. I mean, the guy's only 35 years old, co-founder. Uh, obviously, if Chewy turned into a private equity investor and has wiped out the board and really brought in alumni from Chewy and Amazon with a push towards consumer experience so the goal is um, to kind of put your eggs in the basket hold on for a guy who Makes a lot of jokes on Twitter with memes But seems very locked in and obviously pretty closed off and hiding his cards
0: like you do wonder I mean, they did lease, right, a huge distribution center, right? 700,000 square feet uh, in Pennsylvania to improve its distribution and delivery. So they obviously have high expectations. I do wonder, as you said, Bailey, they've gotten rid of their debt. So they have certainly improved their financial house. Are there acquisitions they could make that could totally kind of turn this company into something different that ultimately maybe is spun out or sold or acquired by somebody else?
7: I think that's the question. Um, what what is the big step? What is the big mm. leap for GameStop? Do they get into game publishing? Maybe, I don't know. Do they find a way to partner up with some of the game producers or as you said, a real in-person experience? You look at like the Dave and Busters, is that something that a future could be like? Uh, it it's really remains to be seen.
1: Uh, Bailey, we're we're you're you're the you're one of the guys who covers meme stocks here. You're one of the people who covers meme stocks and and, and I'm wondering did you think that you know five months after what we saw earlier in the year with GameStop, we'd still be talking about GameStop? Or did you think that this would be short-lived?
7: I thought we would be st- talking about it. I did not imagine that we would see a trend where the basket of the OG mean stocks is trading where it was back in late January. And I wouldn't have thought that AMC would take the world by storm like it has, Wendy's, um, you name the company Clean Energy Fuels. People are making jokes about cow poop on Reddit. I, I did not imagine wow. it would be this big of a deal and paid this closely attention to by core financial institutions.
0: I just, you know, one of the fun things I did, Bailey, earlier today was like, who owns GameStop? And it's. BlackRock. I mean, I understand it's probably in an index fund, right, and stuff. But uh, and I know there's questions about whether it moves out of the Russell, correct?
1: Same with yeah, and same with AMC.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's a lot of big institutional investors, but you know, Ryan, uh, Ryan cautioning that we've got a lot of work in front of us. I mean, this is not something that they flip a switch overnight, Bailey, and it's a different company or a different story.
7: Exactly, and it's very tough because as an investor, um, if you're an institution. almost $24 billion in market cap is really tough to get behind when you're just talking about a vision and what it could be and this Herculean task that is to reinvent and recreate GameStop and make it a core part of the gaming ecosystem. It's obviously very optimistic and there is a huge growth potential, but what does that look like? Because if you're managing a good amount of money, it's hard to get behind a guy who was great one time with a valuation where it is now and with the stock trading At $320 when it was, again, $4 about 11 months ago.
0: All right. Well, we'll be watching nonetheless for GameStop earnings, and we'll see what happens uh, on that uh, report. Bailey, great stuff, as always. Bloomberg News Equities reporter Bailey Lipschel.
3: How about
2: you let me drive?
3: Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going
7: to drive you home?
0: All right, let's get to it, everyone. Just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. We've been bouncing around, but we are just, we've took another leg down in the last hour or so, so we're near our lows of the session. Let's bring in Julian Brigden, co-founder and president of Macro Intelligence, our MI2 partners. It's a global macroeconomic research firm that's been around for a decade. Julian's with us on the phone in Colorado. Julian, how are you?
6: I'm fantastic. Thank you very much. I was just listening to the weather forecast and realizing realizing why I'm glad I moved to Colorado. <laughs> hey, way to rub it in. Okay,
0: exactly. <laughs> it's Sorry been, about
1: that. Yeah, 300 days of sunshine a year, skiing in the
0: in the winter. All right, it's a little rough here right now. Not for you though. Um, markets make sense of it for us right now. We we did see a leg down in the last hour, down 137, as Charlie just mentioned on the Dow. So. Little change, though, overall, when it comes to the S&P and NASDAQ. It feels like we're waiting for that inflation report tomorrow. But how do you see the trade right now?
6: So I think, I mean, I think these are incredibly calm markets. I mean, there's really very, very little going on. Um, it's almost as though the sort of world's decided post-COVID, or certainly the U.S. has, that they're going to disappear on vacation uh, early for the summer. But I do think... What do you mean
0: calm, though? You know, lack of volatility or just... What, what do you mean? I mean, mean cal- just lack of,
6: lack of clear direction, I think, oh, so, okay. to be brutally honest. I okay. mean, you know, we st- we're stuck in relatively big ranges, whether you look at FX, some commodities uh, have come off the board a little bit, equities... Really, sort of quite quiet and and a little boring, and volumes that seem to be very lacklustre. As I said, it almost feels like an August market. A month early mm-hmm. or too early. But right? do you
0: re- you remember in summers past, at least pre-COVID, that we saw, I want to say in 18 and 19, maybe even before that, that often all of a sudden, late summer, I only know because I'm often on vacation, that the market comes apart yeah. and we have a big sell-off.
6: Yes, and I, I don't really see that so much this year. I've got to be honest with you. I mean, I think, um, you know, there are some very important events coming up. Uh, we do have, obviously, the ECB. Tomorrow, and then also we've got this inflation print. But I think, you know, when I look at the inflation story, and I think it's a huge story, and and I'm not as sanguine as the Fed uh, when it comes to this assumption Mm. of transitory, at least I think from a market perspective. I mean, I think the Fed would argue that they're transitory maybe two years out. I really don't think the market's going to give them the benefit of that doubt. but when I look at tomorrow, I'm looking for a pretty high number. Uh, our work suggests that we could be looking for a number in the very high fives, possibly as high as six for the headline CPI. Wow. Um, I think, yeah, And it's just, look, I mean, in part, Tim, it's just base effect. It's a natural way of doing that. But when you look at, just look at simple things like how high PPI is going mm-hmm. um, and the rate of change on those, you can pretty much get a, a pretty good estimate for CPI. And I know... Uh, Jay Powell has told us that companies will be reluctant to pass on price increases, but I'm calling his bluff on that one. I I think we can see it in every single CEO conference call that when you create essentially inelastic demand by, you know, stimulating the economy to this degree and then opening up, then companies do have pricing power. And I think CEOs are taking it with both hands and using that to push on those increases. So I think you get a high print tomorrow, then I think we settle down, and it, it's, a, it's a waiting game because we now have to – and that by definition is we have to discuss this transitory, and it, that doesn't happen in a month. It might happen mm-hmm. in three months. It might happen in six months. Um, but it becomes a much more – as I said, it becomes a waiting game and not a sort of where's the peak? Let's pick, pin that right. you know, tail so, on that. So docking. Julian,
1: if, if there is a high print tomorrow, what happens to the equity market? Mm. How does it respond?
6: Um, look, I mean, it, it really well, I mean, the First question is what happens to the bond market. I mean, the bond yeah. market has settled down quite significantly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, come coming quite a lot. And I do think, in part, Carol, that's because people recognise this is likely to be the high print, mm-hmm. right? You know, just from a base effect perspective. And then, as I said, we go into this longer, more elongated debate. Um, but obviously, I think if you saw a number of this magnitude. Mechanically, yeah. you've got to see a move in things like break evens, which should push push put some pressure on on. Uh Nominals.
0: Well, Jillian, but you know, as most of us, as I know, I've got my logical brain and I've got my, oh, my God, look at that print. Our Bloomberg mm-hmm. Intelligence team has been reminding us that it's all going to take more time when it comes to these inflation numbers and really economic data mm-hmm. points. And they're talking about into 2022 to fully separate when it comes to things like, you know, the transitory forces pushing prices higher than durable increases in inflation. Mm-hmm. We Will we be logical, though, when we see kind of a crazy print tomorrow, do you think? Especially when we're waiting kind of on earnings and that next batch of reports where CEOs give us some indication of what's going on.
6: So, look, I mean, I think there's enough stimulus, there's enough economic momentum in the economy. Um, I mean, if I just look at, say, the inventory cycle, it's only really starting now and we can barely get ahead of the thing. When I look at the CapEx cycle, to me, this seems early cycle type stuff. I mean, I think Mm. we've got enough economic Mm. momentum to keep this economy going into – the middle of next year so you know look if you get a knee-jerk reaction on the nasdaq and i do think that's a market that still looks very very expensive or should we say growth in inverted commas versus value looks still extraordinarily expensive even where the bond market is now i mean our work suggests that that ratio between say the s&p growth index and s&p value index should be 30 percent lower even where bond yields are now, um, that we could continue some of this sort of rotation game and you could get a knee-jerk reaction tomorrow. Um, I'd love to say I think it's going to be extraordinarily volatile because that's what makes our day. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to be turning our wheels for a little bit.
1: How do you think equities are priced right now relative to where you think the economy is going? Because you said the economy can continue strong into 2021, or 2022, Mm -hmm. excuse me. But I'm
6: wondering what's priced into equities right now.
0: And you said NASDAQ, and you I've think looked, growth looks expensive. Yeah.
6: So I think, I think, well, I think in, in general, I think the U.S. looks extraordinarily expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like to be invested in equities. I think, you know, you, macro guys, and we always get a bad rap for this, you know, constantly want to pick the tops in things. But we all know that you don't really make that much money doing that long term. You've got to be invested. Um, and when I look at U.S. markets, they are extraordinarily high. I mean, extraordinarily high.
0: But just to wrap up, Julian, maybe not, Mm -hmm. though, if that's where the growth is, ultimately. Like, if the U.S. market is leading in terms of growth, right, don't we have to compare to kind of what's going on around the rest of the world?
6: Not really, because I think one factor that people don't necessarily take into account is the role of the dollar and the ability of the dollar to sort of suck in that flow of funds that prop up those equities. And I think now that the dollar has started what I think is going to be a multi-year decline I mean, the sort of thing that we saw between, say, 2002 and 2008, where the dollar dropped 40 percent. U.S. equities tend to underperform in that environment because foreign equity investors tend to take their money home because they don't hedge. So every day when they wake up their statement and they see, oh, well, look, the Nasdaq's up a few percent. Oh, wait a second. The dollar's down an equally offsetting amount. They're not making any money in their own currency. So I think, to me, that's an important point
1: going forward. It hey, just right, go ahead Carol. No, go ahead please. I was just going to ask about wage growth and how important wage growth is because Correctly. that yeah 20 yeah. seconds. 20 seconds. Uh, no, no, no.
6: Extra- extraordinarily important. And I think the big mistake the Fed is making is that they viewed this as an 0809 type situation. When you look at the numbers, they look nothing like that. We're not dropping right. anywhere close to that degree. So we're starting at a much higher level, Tim.
0: Yeah, it definitely feels like a different thing. What fun. Come back, please, soon. Julian Brigden, he's co-founder and president of the Macro uh, of Intelligence, uh, our MI2 Partners, as we mentioned, a global macroeconomic research firm, firm that's been around for about a decade.